At the first National Conservatism Conference a couple of years ago, I spoke about the left's goal of unmaking American culture and community. Last year, I talked about the left's goal of unmaking manhood. This year, I want to talk about their efforts to unmake history. Specifically, I want to talk about the history of our country and our founding and the revolution on which both were based. And I take as my point of departure the words of John F. Kennedy at his inaugural address in 1961 when he reminded his generation, famously, that we dare not forget that we are the heirs of that first revolution. Now, he meant, of course, the revolution of 1776, which he described as grounded in the belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Now, that's an interesting contention. And Kennedy, of course, was not alone in making it. But where does it come from? Where does this idea come from that the rights of man originate with God and not from the generosity of the state? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. It comes from the Bible. And that brings me to my contention to you today. We are a revolutionary nation precisely because we are the heirs of the revolution of the Bible. This was a revolution that began with the founding of the nation of Israel at Sinai, that continued with the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth in the days of ancient Rome. This was a revolution of ideas and culture, of society and government and faith. It was truly, to quote the Bible itself, a revolution that turned the world upside down. Let me be more specific. To a world composed of clans and tribes, the Bible introduced the very idea of the individual. To a world that valued the wealthy and well-born before all others, the Bible taught the dignity of the common man. To a world that prized order and social control, the Bible spoke of liberty. Without the Bible, there is no modernity. Without the Bible, there is no America. And now our biblical inheritance is again at the center of our politics. It is the question of the age. The woke left that controls today's Democrat Party is on a campaign to remake this nation. They want us to believe the country is irredeemably racist and oppressive. They tell us our true founding came with the advent of the slave trade on this continent. They reject our history and our traditions. They say gender is a social construct. They say men can get pregnant, that women can be men. They say the nuclear family is repressive and outmoded. And their real target in all of this, I submit to you, is the inheritance of the Bible. What they particularly dislike about America is our dependence on biblical teaching and tradition. What they particularly dislike about our culture is the Bible's influence on it. And now they want to break that influence for good. My argument to you is simple. They are wrong. Whatever your own beliefs, whatever your background, whatever your religious faith, if you have any at all, the revolution of the Bible is worth defending. It is worth preserving. It is the true source of what we know of the rights of man. It is the true source of the liberties we cherish. It has taught us what we know of dignity and equality. The Bible has made us who we are, and it is critical to our future.
Let me start with this. What's perhaps the most cherished ideal that we hold as Americans, and that's the ideal of the individual. There is a myth, long loved by certain leftists, that the ancient world was a free and secular place where people believed as they wanted and lived lives of their own making. Now, we know from historians that really nothing could be further from the truth. In the ancient world, the individual as such hardly existed. There was no such thing as individualism. The ancient world was a place of hierarchy. Every thing, every person had a place, a fixed and unchanging place, bound to where they were by the order of the cosmos. Some were born to rule, most were born to follow, many were born to be slaves, that was the belief. Every family had its ancestral gods, and the family head alone had the right to rule the household in the gods named. Every city had a patron deity, which every citizen was bound to worship. In fact, to be a citizen was to be a member of a particular city and a worshiper of a particular god. There was no such thing as freedom of conscience. There was no such thing as individual decision. As the 19th century historian Fustel de Coulomb put it, the human person counted for very little against that holy and almost divine authority which was called country or state. And as for history, well, history was made by those few that the order of nature designated fit to rule. Always men of social standing, usually wealthy, the so-called natural elite. The Bible challenged all of this, and right from the very beginning. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, who is a nobody from nowhere, no social standing, no claim to power or rule. God called that man to leave his father's house, to leave his father's gods, to leave the markers of meaning and identity in the ancient world, and to come serve him, the one true God, Scripture claims. God called Abraham to stand before him as an individual. God's gaze rested on him personally. Or as Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik writes, Abraham could not find solace in the silent companionship of a God whose image was reflected in the boundless stretches of the cosmos. Only when he met God as father, brother, and friend did he feel redeemed. God tells Abraham that as an individual, he and he personally will be God's agent of blessing and renewal for the whole world. We see the same pattern repeated in the New Testament. Jesus says salvation is available to all who will come to him and that those who follow him will be sons of God, meaning shapers of history, world changers, people through whom God will act. And with this, the idea of the individual is born. One not need be a member of this family or that to be significant. One not, need not have wealth or social standing. One need only heed the call of God. In the words of historian Larry Seidentop, Christ reveals a God who is potentially present in every believer. Through an act of faith, human agency can become the medium for God's love. Which is to say, every person can become an agent of God's purpose as an individual. Where does this leave the old idea of fate and controlling destiny? It's done away with. 
Where does this leave the notion that one's place in history is fixed and cannot be changed? Abolished. Now the individual person becomes an agent of change. Now he or she becomes a maker of history. The Bible invents this kind of individual. And the Bible reveals the dignity of the common man. If you read the Bible through, you'll find across its pages a decided preference for the common, the ordinary, the overlooked, as opposed to the elite, the wealthy, and the socially powerful. God chooses Abraham from nowhere. He famously prioritizes Jacob, who was the second son. King David, before he was king, was the least of his brothers and the least likely to rule. The same theme finds equally pointed expression in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter preaches in his first sermon that God's spirit, his very presence, is now available for all people, as the ancient prophets foretold, men and women, old and young. And then there's the Apostle Paul, who said, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. To a society that privileged wealth and status, a society that disdained workers and mothers and children and common folk, the Bible says each has dignity. The common things of life have dignity. Parenting, home, labor. You know, it's hard to overstate when it comes to labor. The disdain that the world of Greece and Rome held for common workers, people who labored with their hands. Not the Bible. The patriarchs raised livestock. Jesus was a carpenter. His disciples were fishermen. Paul was a tent maker. And the Bible emphasizes over and over again the power of labor that is offered to God. Work unto God, the scripture says, and he will use that work to further his purposes in the world. What's that mean? It means he will make work matter. He will make it last, however seemingly common or mundane. The ancient world honored the high and mighty. The Bible, to paraphrase Charles Taylor, affirmed the significance of ordinary life. I've got uh, two small boys at home, ages nine and seven, Elijah and Blaze, and one of our habits is to read together every night. It's my job to put them to bed. Their mother says that uh, what I usually do is get them riled up and then she has to put them to bed. But in any event, I try. So we read together. We read every night, which is fun. And uh, they have favorite authors. Tolkien is one of them. And Tolkien, I think, really captures this theme beautifully. He puts into the words of Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings these words. He puts into the mouth, rather, of Gandalf these words. Such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. There is no ideal that is more central to American life than the dignity of the common person. And my point to you is, my point to you is that's an ideal that's given to us by the Bible. The biblical tradition also gave us a new concept of liberty. You know, it's interesting. In the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia, the creation stories often involved God's founding pre-mortal cities before humans existed. And then when the humans came along, the gods would designate a ruler, king typically, to carry on the gods' work on their behalf. Notice if you turn to the Bible, it's not what you find. Now, the Bible does 
make a good deal of God designating someone to exercise his authority and carry forward his purposes, but it's not a king. It's Adam and Eve who do it on behalf of all humanity. What's the point? From the first, the Bible pictures individuals as capable of self-rule. For the early Christian philosopher Tertullian, Jesus' maxim to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's had clear political implications. Tertullian said, offer to Caesar your money, but offer to God yourself. The point was, individuals, as God's image bearers, belong to God and him alone, not to an emperor, not to some king, not to a state. God and God alone had the right to claim the individual's obedience, nobody else. And by the same token, the individual deserved liberty to respond to God's call on her life or his. It's right there in Exodus, the story of God calling his people to follow him by what? Liberating them from oppression. It's there in the Apostle Paul who wrote that it is for liberty we have been set free. Now this is a concept of liberty that is virtually unknown in the ancient world. The Greeks spoke of liberty from time to time, but for them and their philosophers, as you will remember, liberty meant mainly life in accordance with the order of nature, which meant hierarchy. So Plato and Aristotle, for example, both assumed that freedom, to the extent they really talked about it at all, would mean individuals obeying their moral and social betters. The Romans, they famously valued self-government, or said they did for part of their history, but they also saw self-rule as a right confined to a small class of individuals who were fit by nature, supposedly, to be citizens. Everybody else was a dependent. And neither the Romans nor the Greeks recognized really any significant limits on government power. But if God's spirit is poured out on all people, if God has called each person to be his delegate and exercise his authority, surely that has political implications. Surely that means citizenship cannot be confined to an elite. Surely it means even the common person has the right to self-rule. Surely it says that even the common man has the right to liberty. As I once heard the late rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, say, surely God's call to the individual sets limits on the state. It draws a boundary on the exercise of government power and says, no further. So, there we have it. Individualism, the dignity of the common person, liberty. That's our biblical inheritance. If I can go on, I mean, the Bible also gave us the idea of a state ruled by men, not by gods. It gave us the distinction between church and state. It gave us equality between men and women, and more and more. But I think you get the idea. These were revolutionary notions that upended the ancient world. And they found their purest political expression in the United States of America. The biblical revolution is right there in the Declaration of Independence, which proclaims that all men are created equal, that we are endowed by our creator with unalienable rights. Uh, these confessions would take centuries to realize in this country, but we recognize them as true from the beginning. The biblical revolutions there in our constitution, which separates power among offices and stations to ensure that the common person can rule and not a clique or an elite. It's there in the Bill of Rights, 
that guarantees freedom to worship, freedom to speak, to assemble, to exercise one's faith free from government interference. The biblical tradition echoed in the great tent revivals of the frontier in the 1820s and 30s, where hardscrabble folks with little to their name heard from the itinerant preachers that they too were called by God. They too could be God's servants. You didn't need a fancy education or a landed estate to be God's child. And those revivals helped spawn a populist political movement that reverberates into our own day. America as we know it, America as we love it, is the product of the revolution of the Bible. But now that biblical inheritance is under siege. Today's woke left is frantically engaged in a campaign of political nihilism. This is the sum and substance of their program, if we're being honest. They want to level the institutions of American society, the family, schools, church and synagogue, our judicial system. They say the country is structurally warped and must be remade top to bottom. But what they reject at bottom is our biblical inheritance. Last year, I mentioned in my remarks the mid-century thinker Herbert Marcuse. Marcuse was a great advocate of the 60s-era student radicalism and of the nihilist attitude toward American society that dominates the left today, which is to say Marcuse was woke. He was also honest. He was an atheist and a Marxist, and he spent a good deal of his time wondering why Marx's long-predicted, long-looked-for revolution had never arrived, and he decided one major reason was Christianity. Like, Marcuse, uh, like Marx, rather, Marcuse believed biblical faith was an opiate, a form of false consciousness, and he worried that it saturated American society. So in a break with Marx's economic determinism, Marcuse decided culture was king, and America's biblical culture was preventing the Marxist revolution the world needed. Even worse, from Marcuse's standpoint, nowhere was that biblical culture stronger than with the American working class. And so for that reason, Marcuse concluded revolution would not come from working people. The biblical hold was too strong. He placed his faith somewhere else. Where? Oh, why, in the educated elite, since you ask. America needed, he said, a cultural revolution to rid itself of the Bible's taint, and the elite, he decided, were just the people to deliver it. Does it sound familiar? That's today's politics in a nutshell. Today's woke left is carrying out a Marcuse-style culture war. They increasingly insist that individuals don't matter. They say society isn't composed of equal individuals standing before a sovereign God, but of warring racial and economic groups vying for power. The woke theorists at the Smithsonian even tell us that individualism itself is racist, that it's nothing more than an artifact of white culture. That's a quote. In the last few years, two separate woke theorists at The Nation and The Washington Post have argued that Americans' votes should be weighted on the basis of race. So now, in the name of democracy, one person, one vote is out. The woke dislikes the notion of the common man. They reject the idea, the biblical idea, that all men and women are equally valuable and equally worthy of participating in public life, of having a say, of having a voice, of being heard. They call working people deplorables. 
and they regard working culture as uncouth and backward, characterized by the kind of people who cling to guns and religion, as somebody once said. Now, the woke think that the educated elite know best, by which they mean, naturally, themselves. And they're not afraid to use power. Not at all. If the big tech oligarchs decide that reporting on Hunter Biden is too dangerous to their interests, they just erase the story from the public square. We've watched them do it. If they decide questioning Anthony Fauci is too threatening to their priorities, they prevent it by their own fiat. That's just the beginning. If the reigning political class decides, say, a former president poses too much trouble to their plans, they order a raid on his house and threaten to jail him. If they conclude too many Americans are complaining online, they create a disinformation board to shut them down. And any disagreement is called violence, and any dissent, insurrection. Marcuse pioneered the concept of repressive tolerance. That's uh, free speech for me and not for thee. He'd be very proud of today's left. Finally, the left rejects the biblical idea of conscience and the liberty that comes with it. Attacks on religious freedom and intellectual inquiry are commonplace now. The woke insist on targeting citizens engaged of works, in works of mercy like the Little Sisters of the Poor because they have the audacity to disregard elite preferences and serve a God beyond the state. They insist that nobody, and especially not parents, may question what children are being taught in schools. If you do, you're a domestic terrorist. To them, liberty means falling in line with the norms they prescribe. It means following the social rules they hand down. They will decide what speech is acceptable. They will decide which religious beliefs may be acted upon and when and where and how. They will determine what is true and what is not, what is fact and what is disinformation. They'll run the country. The left, uh, they say that they want to lead us to a new era. But where they would take us is no age of enlightenment. It is not actually someplace new at all. It is backward to an old age of darkness and hierarchy and repression. And that brings us to the task before us. The woke left now control the commanding heights of American culture, the media, the entertainment industry, the corporations, academia. They seek to marshal their combined cultural power against those who disagree, many of whom sit in this room. They want to shame us. They want to isolate us. They want to silence us if they can. They seek to protect their power. And they will succeed, but only, only if we permit them. In truth, their vision is bleak and their ideology is brittle. They do not understand the deep strength of the American people because they do not understand the deep goodness of their character. They do not understand our history and our ideals because they do not appreciate the truths they reveal. And they do not realize that these truths have made us good and made us strong. And truth is their problem. The woke ideology, this warmed over cultural Marxism is not true. Race and class do not define all that we are. Society is not an unending struggle for power and domination, and America is not structurally defective. America is the best and freest nation in the history of the world, and it is so largely because of the biblical revolution that made us who we are.
And now we need that biblical inheritance again. In this time of fear and despair, we need to hear again that our lives matter, that we are called and loved by God, that he beckons us toward great purpose, that what we do can last, that what we do here can matter. We need to hear again of the dignity of ordinary life, of work and hearth and home, of the joys of marriage and family, and the power of these things to shape the future. I slightly misspoke earlier in this connection when I said that God called Abraham as an individual. That much is true. But God said it was Abraham's family he would use to change the world. You know, Abraham became a blessing to all mankind when he became a husband and a father. That's a message that we need to hear again in our society. And In the final analysis, the woke ideology has more in common with the ancient world than it does with America, and it will not prevail in the end. Whether it prevails in our day is up to us, and that will depend on our courage. Let me close with this. In 8390, a crowd of Christian believers gathered at a pagan temple known as the Serapeum in Alexandria, it was a shrine to the god Serapis. A few years before, the virulently anti-faith emperor Julian had attempted to throttle Christianity and purge Rome of Christian influence. Among other measures, he seized control of the education system. He barred Christians from teaching. He demanded that all students in the empire study in the ways that he approved. He commanded worship of the Roman gods, and one of those was the god Serapis. So on this day in 390, in the shadow of the state's recent persecution, this group of believers gathered at the temple to take a stand. In the center of the temple, we read, there was a statue of the god clutching in his hands a three-headed serpent. And the legend went that if any impious hand should dare to violate the majesty of the god, the heavens and earth would instantly return to their original chaos. Well... One soldier stepped forward carrying an axe. His name is lost to history. All we really know about him is what the historian Rufinus tells us, that he was better protected by faith than he was by his weapon. But there in that moment, this one man made a choice. He made a choice to challenge the powers and principalities of his age. He made a choice to reject the dictates of emperors. He made a choice to strike a blow for truth. He climbed a ladder to the top of the statue, raised his battle axe, and then with all of his might, drove it home. Onlookers reported that as the blow fell, the god's jaw broke away, and as it did, thousands of rats came surging out of the rotten insides. The woke left may seem powerful, and maybe they are. Opposing them might cost us much. But the truth is worth any cost. And that's what courage is in the end. It is paying the cost, no matter how high, for the truth. And remember the teaching of Scripture, the one that runs from first to end, that though the God of the universe could have accomplished his purposes entirely on his own, he chose instead to call us. He invited us to do his work with him and to follow him. 
So let's count the cost and take our stand. And when we do, we will turn the tide. Thank you so much for having me.